This is Nando Adama Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Jeff Haney, CEO and founder of Pinpoint, a SaaS company focused on helping software teams build better software. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day, Jeff. Thank you. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so I'm a longtime software developer and uh, entrepreneur. I've been building software companies for quite a long time. This is my fourth venture-backed startup, um, and we focus really on my, my focus has always been on helping software developers build better software, and, and that's been a big uh, mission in my life. I've been doing software development for about 30-plus years professionally and, uh, and starting companies probably for the last 20 of those. We'll talk about Pinpoint in a minute, but can you tell us a little bit about the other companies you had? Yeah, my most recent company that me and the other co-founder of Pinpoint also started together this is our third uh, company together, we, we started a company called Accelerator, which made a um, very popular open source mobile framework called Titanium. Um, and we built that, um, we started that company back in 2007 timeframe, 2006, 2007, and, and we sold that a few years ago. But um, we really focused on trying to, uh, very similar, trying to help developers build mobile applications at the time. Cross-platform was not really a thing at the time. Um, and we really wanted to help um, software developers build native apps. And most of the people in the, in the you know, developer ecosystem at the time were web developers, um, back-end developers. So how do you bring those skills uh, to, for, you know, to the sort of forefront to help you build mobile applications? iOS was just coming out, Android was coming out, and we really wanted to help them build cross-platform cross applications and really help them leverage the skills that they already had to build this new generation of applications. And that was how Titanium was born. It was an open source framework. Uh, eventually, Accelerator became a venture-funded company, and we built a bunch of stuff around um, that framework uh, alongside microservices platform and the cloud and a bunch of other things over time. I remember using Titanium some years back. Uh, there was one company, I think it was the only time I was building mobile apps, but Titanium was what we went with. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah, and before that, I had a had a software company that was doing. Um, you, you'll laugh now, but uh, it was sort of a predecessor to what became uh, Twilio. We we had a um, there was an open standard called VoiceXML that was, had been uh, adopted by the W3C, the the standards group that owns you know HTTP, HTML, and things like that, and XML, etc. And we um, we had a um, a software technology built around VoiceXML, which is a way you could program. A telephony application, speech recognition applications, things like that, using a standard markup. Very similar theme, which was how do you take C-level programmers and use XML to build voice dialogues and voice interactive applications? Um, like I said, it was way before <laughs> Twilio, but uh, started in 1999, 2000 timeframe, which was a big deal back then because back then you had to program all your voice dialogues via C and these sort of proprietary boards called Dialogic and things like that. And so we we built this interesting technology through around a standardized uh, XML language um, and helped developers, again, build these um, IVR applications. So that's been probably a theme in my career. I've been very involved in open source. I've been very involved in standards. I've been very involved in helping developers build better tools or build better um, software that helps them hopefully do their job better. So let's move on to Pinpoint. What is it? Why did you start it? So Pinpoint was really born out of the idea. Me and my co-founder were both very technical um, as, as I said, and um, we got frustrated as AppSolar got to be a much bigger company, several hundred employees, and we, we sort of focused on, um, we were at the time focused on sort of growing revenue, scaling the company, 
um, and really struggled with engineering. Even though we had built the original version of the product and, and, and had been involved in the development of all the products as they matured, um, and we're still pretty involved in engineering, running engineering, even though we had a, a head of engineering, um, we still struggled with how do we how do we know what's happening? Engineering is very much a black box. Um, how do we understand how to measure engineering? We, we kind of knew where we wanted to head, North Star, uh, and we did, a, I think, a pretty decent job of communicating that inside the company and certainly uh, more broadly as a community. Um, but always, how do you align sort of the, the sort of activities and priorities that people do every day to the strategic objectives and sort of what you're trying to do as a, as a business um, was always very difficult. Um, and we didn't know really how to measure. We always had, like every company these days, have a hard time attracting great uh, talent. And then how do you retain that great talent? And then how do you get the talent working on the highest um, things that sort of generate the best uh, business outcomes? And so Pinpoint was sort of born out of this idea of like, we just we couldn't figure it out. Um, we had this amazing sales operations team that knew everything about sales and marketing. Same thing, had an amazing marketing operations team. We, we had all kinds of analytics. We could look at all kinds of dashboards about how things were working across different products, territories, size of company, et cetera. Um, and we had all this amazing data that was very interesting given that these were sales, marketing, obviously finance very much had uh, amazing dashboards. Um, we'd walk into engineering uh, and product-oriented meetings and it was just sitting around talking and sitting around talking about what we wanted to do and what's the priority and what problems did we have. And we, it was never really a data oriented discussion. Um, and so that's, that was sort of like, we started having a lot of discussions about that. Initially at AppCelerator, we weren't trying to build a company. We were just trying to solve this problem for ourselves um, and thinking about what could we do to try to sort of measure this and, and, and better sort of focus our energy and, and resources. Um, we sold the company, um, you know, uh, months later um, probably about six or seven months later before we started talking about this idea, um, we got uh, we had to spend a year with the company that acquired um, us, which is a much larger public company. And we got sort of an interesting opportunity because we went from a small, relatively small company um, to a much larger public company with many, many thousands of developers. And it was interesting to watch to see how similar uh, our problems were with their problems. Uh, they had very little visibility, even though they were a much larger company, a public company, they had very little visibility into what happened inside their engineering organization and their product teams. Um, they had a lot of products. So it was a, it was a uh, you know, we like to say it was just a lot more zeros into their revenue than ours um, and a lot more developers than we had and a lot more products than we had. But it was the same exact problems. Um, and so we start, well, that was sort of the aha moment. It was like, okay, we were at a small company. We had these problems. We got to a much bigger company that was a software company. Very similar. Obviously, the problems are much bigger. Um, we got to solve this problem. We started talking to a lot of our friends um, that had were CIOs or CTOs or heads of engineering. And we just kept asking people, do you have this problem? And everybody resoundingly said, yes, engineering is a black box. Why isn't there a dashboard for engineering? Why isn't there a way to run engineering as an engineering operations like we have a sales or marketing operations team? Um, and that that sort of was the idea that bore Pinpoint. And we just started really focusing on that. We thought that was a really great opportunity here. A little earlier this year, you released a report, State of Engineering Performance Management. Why did you write this report? So we, we really... Um, grapple with this idea of pinpoint. We think it's a big problem that most people have, uh, most people we've talked to. 
Um, we wanted to try to ourselves quantify it. I mean, we're a data-driven company ourselves. So we're, we wanted to sort of say, how do we put some quantifiable data around this topic, um, this idea of engineering performance and and how do you manage engineering performance or engineering operations? And so obviously we have a selection bias problem. If people are talking to us or interested in what we do, um, they probably care about this problem. But prob- what about all the other people? Do they care about this problem at all? And so we wanted to try to quantify that. Um, so we put together a report. We, we surveyed um, – a little over 100 companies. They were software leaders in, in various industries, various size of companies, um, and then, of course, different sort of seniority levels inside the company. You know, everything from the CTO or CIO all the way down to a, a dev manager, a software manager. And so we want to sort of look across the spectrum of companies, size, uh, and title and ask them some really basic questions about engineering, how they manage engineering, sort of the, you know, sort of the productivity and, and, and sort of uh, um, performance of their engineering teams from their point of view. This is obviously um, their own point of view, and that's what we came up with. Can you talk about some of the companies that you surveyed? Yeah, so it, not surprisingly, um, we we reached out to a, a pretty broad base of people across our networks of LinkedIn and social and sort of people we obviously um, have, have talked to in the past or people that are existing customers um, but we asked, of course, asked them to share it with their colleagues and their, you know, their sort of network. So we tried to get as broad of a, if you will, spectrum of, uh, of people looking at it. Of course, not surprisingly, it skewed more towards software companies or high tech, what we call high tech companies. A vast majority of the companies that build software or maybe that care about the idea of engineering and engineering performance were software companies themselves or technology oriented companies. Um, the second largest segment, again, probably not surprising, uh, at least not to us, were financial services companies. They spend a lot of money. They're, they're classic early adopters in technology and leveraging technology to you know, sort of build better products and services. Um, and then the, the bottom three um, were really e-commerce, media, uh, and healthcare. Again, um, uh, not super surprising given that e-commerce online is all about the technology and certainly all about the data and performance of, of, of their investments in that data. Uh, media, media companies and healthcare companies, again, uh, huge amounts of innovation that they're doing to bring software and technology into bear in their business models. What kind of things did you ask them? Um, good question. We asked them um, uh, a little bit about um, a, a, a broad strategic straw. So, you know, we, we asked them, you know, the, the obvious first questions were, you know, what what do you do? What what kind of performance or what kind of metrics do you use to, to measure engineering? Um, and, and not surprising or maybe surprisingly, a little bit surprising for us. Um, where you know, vast majority, 56% of the people don't use any metrics at all. They don't use any way. They don't track anything as it as it relates to engineering, um, which I guess in some ways should be surprising, or maybe it's not surprising. Engineering is a black box, so maybe maybe this idea that you don't use any you know you don't use any data or any performance metrics to track engineering um, is a is a um, surprising thing, but maybe it wasn't for for a lot of people. We asked them if they did, of course, use metrics. We asked them sort of what metrics they cared about most, right? I mean, what are they trying to – is it really about the people? Is it about their sprints or their sort of agile projects? Is it, is it about um, sort of the way they – you know, sort of the way they uh, structure their teams or the, the locations they put them in? So we're trying to sort of understand, you know, if they do measure then, kind of what, how do they measure broadly speaking, not specifically speaking? Um, and then we tried to also ask them about satisfaction, 
right? So the satisfaction of the performance of the engineering effort, right? So which starts to put people in interesting buckets. If you can sort of cohort people into people that don't track and that people do track, and then you ask sort of, do they have satisfaction versus not? Of course, the people who track have better satisfaction, again, un probably unsurprisingly than people that do track. So we ask them just a series of different questions. And then it's also interesting when you look at, um, if you if you will, your different um, uh, sort of seniority levels inside the company. If you're a manager and you're you're managing a software development team, you sort of your happiness factor um, with what you do and your satisfaction factor versus maybe if you're higher in the organization. Unsurprisingly, the higher you got in the organization, the more dissatisfaction you had with what the performance was from your team. You know, um, people that were, if you will, higher in the organization. Let's say the CTO of the organization. Um, was much more dissatisfied about the performance of their team than than the manager, um, which was you know much much happier in some ways. Hmm. Are you, were you surprised that uh, you, I think you said fifty six percent did not measure it at all? Was that uh, was that unexpected? Um, I guess it's unexpected. You know, I guess maybe it shouldn't be unexpected because our company's focused on helping companies do this. So maybe it's a it's sort of a it's a little bit of a, a nice thing to see, given that's what we're charting our company out to help them do. On the flip side, yeah, it, we, we, we assumed some level of measurement, even if there was, uh, uh, you know, an ineffectiveness or, you know, a, a dissatisfaction. We figured people were measuring, they just were dissatisfied with the results because it was complicated to measure it. Um, maybe it was not so objective, um, things like that. Um, but what we found was no measurement at all, you know, I guess was a little bit surprising. On the flip side, talking to lots of CIOs, CEOs, CEOs, you know, sort of executive teams in lots of companies, big and small. Over the last two years, I spent my whole mission. I mean, I probably talked to thousands, at least a thousand CTOs um, or CEOs of companies. Um, and it's probably not so, you know, in, in retrospect, not so surprising because everyone I talk to sort of says, yeah, engineering is a big black box. We want to get better. We need to get more out of it uh, because it's so critical to our future and to our success. Um, and we're spending so much money that, you know, and maybe in some ways I shouldn't be surprised. I don't want to labor too much on the methodology, but I have one more question about it. Um, sure. You, had, you, you, know, you select, as you say, um, some companies that you have familiarity with in some way and they reached out to others. But that there must be a massive amount of companies that either didn't respond or wouldn't even consider responding. That's so right. when you see, you know, 44% have um, some form of metric and 56 don't, it's for that slice. Do you have any estimate for, let's say, a much, much broader, let's say, the whole uh, ecosystem? The whole, the, whole, the whole world, yeah. yeah. I mean, my guess is the vast majority, 80 plus percent of people don't don't uh, don't track anything in engineering. I think engineering classically, you know, if you think, I like to sort of take a step back and think about it in context. If we think about professional software development or software engineering as a trade, we haven't been doing it very long. If you think about sales or marketing, and not, I'm not talking about sales and marketing as it as it relates to software. Clearly, that's still very new. But if we just sort of think about business and trade and e-commerce or commerce in general, we haven't been doing software development professionally very long. Um, and then if you think about the sort of modern age of software, the sort of idea of software being sold online or as a service, it's even shorter, right? And so, um, you know, you're sort of talking 30 plus years, maybe 40, if you start to include sort of government agencies and universities. Is a lot, lot longer, clearly, as you go back. But if you just sort of talk about modern business and you, the use of software as a trade or as a profession, 
Um, we haven't been doing it super long as it compares to finance, let's say, or, or marketing. You know, we've been in marketing a really long time. Obviously, marketing itself has changed dramatically in how we do marketing. Um, but software itself isn't—we haven't been doing software very long, so it, it's still a fairly young. And 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 then if you think think about software development, at least uh, you know people have been around a while. Like we haven't actually been doing software that differently. Obviously, the technologies are dra- drastically different. The tools are different. The way we deploy software is different. But if you sort of just think about how we build software, how we estimate software, how we how we sort of construct software develop, you know, the software itself. Um, it's not changed dramatically in, in 20 plus years. Obviously, with the advent of Agile, there has been some significant changes from waterfall to Agile, if you will. But within that, if you will, it's, 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 a, it's a, the macro, at least my point of view, the macro hasn't changed all that often or all that much, rather. Um, and so it's not surprising that we, we still don't really know how to really run and build software really at high performance. Um, then if, you know, the other sort of macro thing I think, I think about is that, you know, again, the software centers, if you will, the sort of places where people have been doing software and again, in aggregate, uh, Bay Area, New York, Boston, and there's a handful of large, you know, London, Singapore, there's, there's a handful of large centers, if you will, of software development. Um, and I think in the next 20 plus years, that'll get dislocated as well. You know, we're going to move from very few people that look a certain way, that have worked only for a certain company, that have come out of a certain educational background, that have done it a certain way. That diversity is going to really change in the next 20 plus years. How people build software will change, where they build it from, how they construct it, what the teams look like, the methodology they use, how it's measured, uh, and how important software development is to the future of humanity. Um, that will change a lot. So I do believe, back to your original question, I do believe that the vast majority of companies, big and small, most people don't know how to do software really well. Um, we, so then thus, we don't know how to measure it. Um, we don't know how to you know, even talk about how we do it well. And there's no really common way of doing it. And I think that, that has to change. I mean, I think, I think the future of business, the future of software, the, certainly the future of humanity, uh, if you think about are way out, you know, 50 plus years, multi-planetary, you know, AI and things like that. I, I do think that, that we've got to get a lot better at how we build software as a, as a, you know, as a profession. Let's talk a little bit about the companies that did measure performance. Uh, yeah. What were the metrics that they used? Good question. Very, most of them focus more around, um, if you, you know, not surprisingly, probably they, they focus much more around the time it took, you know, and that was either measured in velocity or sort of cycle time, cycle time being how long does it take to sort of, once you start working to sort of finish, um, we define it a certain way, you know, there's, there's sort of lots of people out there in the world that sort of define cycle time. So that's a fairly known idea. Um, something certainly we didn't invent. Um, velocity is another one that lot people like to look at. So again, a similar, you know, distant cousin, if you will, to cycle time, but velocity is sort of this amorphous way you can sort of how, how fast or, you know, how, what's the, the, you know, sort of velocity forward are we getting, are we getting velocity? Are we moving faster as we get better? And as we do more stuff, um, that those are sort of the, like I said, those are sort of the two kind of halves of the same coin, if you will. Um, so people want to know how fast, cause there's a, you know, Business today is an urgency uh, problem. You know, it's a competitive environment. We're moving really fast. Customers demand a lot from us. We have to deliver more and more and more, especially newer business models. Um, so those are sort of one half. The other half really focuses really much more around quality. 
you know, okay, it doesn't really matter if I write code really fast if I produce a really crappy product, right? If it has lots of bugs in it or, you know, we have a lot of return problems. Um, so quality is, again, another one that's a little bit amorphous, right? How do you define quality? Is it bugs? I don't know. Maybe people haven't found those issues yet and they're not necessarily, uh, you know, surfaced yet. Um, so quality, again, can be very, uh, very tough to nail down. But that's another one that obviously people care about, right? I mean, you know, that impacts revenue, that impacts your support of your customers and the happiness of your customers. Um, there's a lot of things that quality impacts. So how do I go really fast, but how do I have high quality? Um, and then the other few that, that people, um, we ask them to, you know, around tracking, um, Richard, really more around efficiency. You know, how, how, how well am I doing planning around my sprints or how well are they executed? Um, you know, that's often a measure of determinist, determinism. Right. You know, if I if I, if the team says they can do 10 things, can they do 10 things and how often do they do it? You know, do they do seven or do they do 10? And if they do 10 with high quality, um, how predictable is that? Um, so that that helps, again, from a business planning and management standpoint, people care a lot about predictability because that's what they're going to make. Uh, they're going to take risk around or they're going to make promises to the market or customers around. Uh, and then the, the the other two really were around frequency. Again, you know, if if I if I can't get what my you know if I'm think about it from a business standpoint, if I can't get what I need today, if I'm consistent, can I get it tomorrow or the next day? You know that that comes back down to frequency. If it takes me a year to get something, I'm gonna better darn get it uh, right away uh, because it might be a year before I get it later. Um, and so, again, all, all these things form this interesting constellation, if you will, of ways that people are trying to really get their handle on this black box and really make it more predictable. Um, it's okay to manage risk, right, if we kind of could understand what the risk is and we can understand what the sort of the, the sort of throughput and velocity and sort of quality are, right? What's, what's happening is when I don't have anything, everything becomes important. Um, and, and so it it's, uh, becomes a little bit frantic for companies. Did, in, in the... In the report, you have, you know, none as the most common, then cycle time, velocity, quality, and so on. Did companies generally use only one metric or would they combine, let's say, cycle time with quality in some fashion? Well, we didn't pr we didn't get enough into that. We only gave them ability to check, uh, if you will, um, which ones they used and cared about. And certainly, people checked more than one. Um, and you can see that in the results. It's not it's not sort of articulated mathematically in the report itself, but uh, in the raw res uh, data that we went through, um, you could definitely see that. And 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 some only had one, you know, or one or two. So it was, it was sort of an interesting way of sort of looking at it. But we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't sort of, we didn't have enough data to be able to sort of do too many correlations between them. I noticed cost isn't listed at all. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of energy that we do in our product. Um, try to surface costs. That's a big part of our product. But. But, um, it, you know, what we found is generally today, and again, if you think about sort of the early stage of this market, um, generally makes people think that software engineering is a sunk cost. You know, I've already hired the people. I've already spent the money. In fact, I would hire more if I if I knew that, you know, I could get more out of them. Right. So generally, we find software engineering is uh, either a sunk cost that people want to get more efficient or at least make the promise that they've, you know, fulfill the promise that they've made. Um, or they want to invest faster, 
right? They want to put more money into it. They want to, you know, their, their problem is not one of, you know, how do I reduce cost or how do I save money? It's how do I invest further ahead? How do I get better results? And that's kind of probably, again, back to software companies. We've been in this amazing bull run in the last, you know, many years now. So um, there's been a lot of, you know, if you will, results out of this and people want to move faster, typically, especially software companies. But we didn't focus on that too much in the, uh, you know, in the survey itself this time. If you were advising a company, what metric would you say they should use to measure performance? Good question. I mean, I think that, you know, we have, we have a sort of a, a set of measurements that we think really help people um, understand where they're at. And again, our, our sort of premise is that you've hired great people, you've, you've, you've entrusted them with, you know, an, an important uh, mission for the company, um, which is software development is important and critical to the sort of the future and success of the company. Um, you know, it's sort of like I, I like to give uh, sort of the analogy: if you're if the if the Yankees are going to hire a star pitcher, they're going to give that that person every possible tool, every possible you know uh, sort of help that they can to make that person successful. They don't want them to fail. In fact, they want them everything they need them to succeed. They need them to throw as many strikes as they can, right? And so, I think software development from from our perspective is very similar. You hire great software engineers, you empower them to do you know amazing creative things. You want to give them everything you can to be successful. Um, and so um, a lot of what we've really focused on is how do you know um, if you are getting what you wanted out of that? A lot of what happens, you're a software engineering. I'm sure a lot of people that listen to your podcast, software engineers, um, or have been in software engineering, right? A lot of what we do with software engineering is doesn't help me as a software engineer build better software. Um, there's a lot of ceremonial things that happen. There's a lot of waste, a lot of meetings, a lot of things that just have to happen. Uh, we call it the corporate tax that really don't help me build better software. Um, and so, again, a lot of what we try to do is help um, management and sort of help leadership understand, um, you know, things like cycle time or throughput. You know, cycle time being like we talked about is how fast your your sort of, if you will, your pipeline is moving. Um, throughput is how many things are you be able to get through that pipeline, right? So um, quality, obviously, that becomes super important. Things like defect density becomes important. If you're moving things really fast through the pipeline, but you're creating a ton of defects, you're just creating problems faster than you're going to be able to solve them. Um, you know, so those are the types of things that we really focus on. Um, there's, you know, at the highest level, we think there's probably only four or five things that really help you understand the quality, if you will, of your software pipeline. If we think about software simply as a pipeline, great ideas come in and hopefully great working product comes out. What happens inside that pipeline is really up to, um, uh, you know, sort of the shared, um, shared pack between management, you know, and sort of leadership uh, and the engineering organization itself. And those, those are important really constituents to sort of bring together to help them understand how do you better run engineering. Often we think of this engineering problem, but most likely it's probably not an engineering problem. It's probably a product definition problem or a priority problem or, you know, sort of there's lots of other problems that impact engineering at the end of the day. And so we want to help sort of both teams be able to synthesize what's happening um, through uh, you know, non-judgmental data, metrics, signals, whatever you want to call them, that sort of uh, provides a language that we can both talk about and, and ba basically understand the trade-offs that we made inside of engineering. How does Pinpoint measure their own performance as a, let's say, a software development group? 
Well, we're trying to eat our own dog food, the, to use that proverbial saying. We we use Pinpoint ourselves. We've been we always tell you know the company likes to say we're com- we're customer zero, and in fact, inside the so our product, we view ourselves as customer zero, and we use our product ourselves. It's hard because you're trying to build the trying to build the jet engine and and fly the plane at the same time, and that can be quite uh, struggling. A uh, big struggle. What we've tried to do to sort of get around that is we've we actually um, and we actually build every feature into Pinpoint by first using it ourselves. So we use ourselves as our first test case. Obviously, we take input from customers. Um, that's not to say that we come up with our, all our own features or all our own sort of improvements to the product. But but generally, what we do is if we have feedback, you know, we're our own best user because we're a software development company ourselves and we're growing. So. We, we sort of tell everybody in the company, if you're not using every part of the product and, and this sort of up and down, if you will, the organization, then that's a problem. I mean, it doesn't mean we're going to have democracy and everybody's going to use 100% of the surface area of the product. Um, but if you're not generally using the core capabilities of the product um, as an engineer or as a dev manager, or as a leader in the company, that's a problem. Um, and we try to enforce that through analytics ourselves or the own product usage analytics. Obviously, we're a small company, so we have a lot of every week. For example, last week we had a product planning uh, week, and all we did is we spent literally one day going through every screen in the product as a team, as a whole team, talking about it. What did we like? What did we not understand? What was usage? Looking at the usage data. Should we throw it out? Should we refactor it? Is it still important? Um, and clearly, we get this feedback also from customers, um, but we feel like we're kind of the best use case ourselves. Um I like to Slack's one of our investors. I like to say, like the people at Slack, when they demo Slack, they don't demo a demo instance. They they demo their Slack, right? They show you how they use Slack, uh, and we do the same thing. You know, when we demo for customers, we typically show our own data. We actually demo our real live data for Pinpoint, and we talk about ourselves. Uh, and we're actually trying to find as a way to open source that data or even make that live instance available for everyone. Um, and so. You know, that sort of it's, it, it sort of adds a unique thing. One, because then we, we sort of we have empathy for how our customers are using our product. Um, we, we try to ourselves become our own best test case for the product. Um, you know, we don't want to just build shelfware or things that we think are great and we've defined them, but we would never use them ourselves. You see a lot of product products get built that way and they're, they don't tend to do that well long term. Um, and then we try to be rigorous about like, if this isn't really working, if, you know, our, our, you know, we, we like to sort of say our, um, criteria is that it has to be something we can make change from, you know, if we look at a number and we look at the data behind the number, is it actionable? Can we do something with that? Um, is there some change that we will invoke or is there some different way of thinking about it or some process change or technology change or something um, and so that rigor, um, and again, we're not perfect. I mean, we have plenty of our own issues, but um, I'll give me a great example. Right now, um, we're working on a new, um, a new thing in our product um, to help sprint teams, basically, because we spend a lot of time grooming the backlog, figuring out what do we prioritize, and we have a product manager that's going through and doing this. So one of the things that we're trying to, we have machine learning uh, against all of our data. So we have some really interesting insights into the data that we're collecting. Um, and so we're trying to figure out, can we use machine learning to basically help us 
automatically determine what things to work on next and how to pack sprints, at least as a recommendation, as a first ca- a first pass recommendation. Um, and again, back to like um, uh, we're using it on ourselves because we can sort of we contextualize the data. Would we would we have worked on this? Would we have prioritized this? Um, it may never make the product, right? It may never make it, but that's a great example of us saying we've got a problem. It's a very routine problem that probably every team has. You spend a lot of energy doing this, especially when you have multiple teams. How can we use the unique position we have with the data that we have and sort of the knowledge and information and context we have to then provide something that is truly uh, valuable to those teams, right? That keeps them out of having to do ceremonial type activities and things that really focus them on the work that provides productivity. Does Pinpoint gather this data automatically or do I as a developer, as a manager, have to go in, click things, type stuff in? No, we do everything automatic. So we, we, when we first uh, connect your to your system, so that might be a Jira as an example, or your source code system, so a GitLab or a GitHub as an example, um, et cetera, your HR system, et cetera, we pull all this data. We pull your historical data in, and that's what we build sort of models around so we have a really good understanding of all your historical data. It also means the moment we ingest all your data, you're live. You're, you can immediately start using the product. You don't have to wait a month or two months or a year for new data to arrive. Um, so we pull all your historical data in, uh, and then once that, that happens, then, of course, real-time as issues or pull requests or source code or any of that stuff that's happening, um, it's live inside of Pinpoint. So, um, and then, yeah, obviously, then you start using the product. You mentioned earlier that engineering is a black box when viewed from the rest of the company. Is engineering the only black box in most companies? It's hard to say it's the only black box, but certainly it's probably the only one that you have an excuse left in an organization. I mean, most, uh, I would say, modern companies now have a sales operations function, um, if you're of, at least of a certain size. Maybe if you're 10 people, you don't. But if you're certainly over 100 people, you're going to have a, a functioning sales operations team. Um, you're going to have lots of great detail about your pipeline, your forecast, um, your territories, your product bait downs, your revenue, et cetera, right? You're going to have sell stages that are going to be well understood. You're going to have criteria to move between each stage. Within each stage, you're going to have pretty good prediction about the types of, of activities that will drive you to the next stage and when they will drive you to that stage. So you've got a tremendous amount of, of detail that really helps you drive sales. It doesn't mean the salesperson still doesn't need to sell and they need to do sort of do all kinds of interesting things to get the customer um, but nonetheless, uh, there's lots of uh, operational data that helps you understand what's happening. Very similar to marketing. Um, you know, marketing, we don't just put, you know, put out marketing campaigns anymore and hope that, you know, it generates business. No, we have a marketing operations function. We have marketing analytics. We have a lot of analytics around, you know, A-B testing titles of emails or, you know, landing pages or things like that, SEO, SEM. We can, we can understand where when we, when we place dollars into the market, Given a certain metric, we can or message rather, we can understand what what that does to the top of the funnel as far as creating opportunities for sales. Um, so we have a lot of again a lot of technology, a lot of methodology, and a lot of data that drives marketing. It's still a very creative function. We still need to write, and we still need to create ads, and we still need to do a very creative thing. But within that creativity, there's a lot of if you will analytical rigor and data that helps you understand the return that you're getting on those investments. And frankly, where do you place your calories? I mean, where do you spend your time and energy for the best, uh, the best result? Um, so, 
you know, and of course we could talk about finance and many other areas of the business. So, but if you look at engineering, you know, in some ways it's the last organization, funny enough, given that it is so data-driven and so analytical itself, that's sort of the last organization that we, in some ways, we, we sort of come up with an idea of what we need. Um, we throw it over the fence, if you will, to engineering, and then we hope for the best. Um, and, and, you know, obviously within engineering, as we both know, there's a huge amount of rigor in engineering for the discipline and, and how we do software engineering. Um, but, but for some reason that, that never, you know, that never escapes any other part of the organization. And again, we very talk, we talk about engineering very much from a narrative or an emotional point of view. We don't talk about it from an analytical rigor oriented point of view. Um, and we don't help sort of stakeholders understand what's happening, um, and, and sort of usually that sometimes falls on the organization of like product management or some sort of PMO function um, to help translate sort of back and forth. And that, that sort of loses fidelity and, and sort of context. And, and we think it's important for engineering to, to have that and to be able to, to sort of do that much better. In some people's views, I think Agile was meant to bring something of that nature, the idea of points and then your, or your estimates, your points. And at the end of a sprint, did you achieve those? And then, you know, over a two month three month period you would have those metrics absolutely but yeah I don't, what happened i i don't know what happened I, I think the problem you know i think the problem agile itself is there's no uh, we we don't have really an indictment of agile i think agile has done a lot of wonderful things i think the challenge with agile is it doesn't speak the language of business um, story points don't mean anything. They're, they're hard enough between teams right by definition they're meant to be each team can sort of adapt what it means to that team um, but it's hard to sort of run a business like that. It's really hard to sort of say, well, in China, you know, you know, it sort of means this uh, financially. When we talk about a ledger of, you know, the general ledger of the business, how much money do we have in the bank? You know, what's our cost to sell? Uh, you know, you know how, to, how, how, how much did it cost to acquire a lead if we talked about it in North America or in Europe differently, right? That would be, that would be crazy. That'd be chaotic. That should be illegal, right? I mean, you know, sort of use the financial uh, sort of uh, viewpoint. Um, or in sales, I mean, if you sort of said like, uh, you know, within sales, uh, you know, each uh, rep in each territory came up with their own way of qualifying a customer and thinking about how they actually delivered revenue and the product they sold and the price they sold it at was just wildly up to that sort of that sales team to decide. That would be chaotic. We would think that's crazy. Um, there would be no way to normalize that. And so Agile, again, not an indictment of Agile, it was designed that way. Again, not to take away, it was, it was solving for a very different thing, I think. You know, when we were coming from Waterfall and sort of the way we built software, everything had to be done all up front before we wrote a line of code, right? And it was to recognize that that's not practical or even, you know, a good thing to do. Um, that these things evolve too fast. Software itself evolves. The knowledge and requirements evolve as you start to, start to understand context. Uh, and we needed the ability to be, quote, agile. Um, the problem is it doesn't really solve anything for the business. Um, and the language of agile really doesn't help. A burn down chart doesn't mean anything. Um, and so, you know, we've sort of thought about it is if, if, if I talk to you or anybody, even if, if you're not a really strong business person, but if I talk to you about um, what the average sell price of a product is, you, you kind of understand that, right? Whether it's a, a shrink wrap product or a digital product, you can sort of understand what that means. Um, if I talk to you about uh, the cost of acquisition, you know, so they call it CAC, right? In the software world, the cost to acquire a customer. What is the physical cost? If I sell a, a widget for a dollar, but it takes me $3 to acquire that customer, probably not a good business, right? Um, so there's a common vocabulary that business people can use to talk about sales and marketing as an example. 
Um, and, and we know what it means sort of independent of the technology, whether you use HubSpot or Salesforce. We don't care. It doesn't really matter if it's an inside selling telesales organization or an enterprise field uh, sell. Um, the, the numbers certainly will tell us a lot. Um, they'll tell us a lot about what's going on, but they don't necessarily dictate the sales process or the technology that we use in sales or in marketing. And so I think similar in engineering, we need to come up with a better vocabulary that business people and technical people can talk about engineering as a business. Um, within that business, certainly there's a lot of vocabulary that's specific to the business. My marketing people have a lot of things that they talk about that are very specific to marketing and how they measure marketing um, that's not so important to sort of the business, but it's important for them uh, and helps them with their language. And same with sales. Um, and I think a very similar thing, we just don't have this for engineering, you know, a story point or a burn down, burn up chart, um, even a sprint, that sort of concept is still a fairly foreign business concept, a business language. And I think that's part of the challenge. I recently released a podcast with Bob Martin, one of the creators of Agile, and we cover a lot of this stuff in a lot more depth. So for anyone interested, check out episode 135. Let me move on to another part of your report. And this is a little bit of a worrying uh, thing, but I'll let you tell, tell us. How is the engineering practice viewed by the business, especially as you move up through the layers in the business? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, sort of like the alarming thing is the business thinks engineering is a black box, as we've discussed, and they don't have a lot of credibility, meaning that we put a lot of dollars in, we get a lot of promises back, and we're always late, we're always over budget, we always need more time. Um, it's a highly unpredictable thing. Now we know inside the, you know, inside engineering, that's the case, right? Requirements change, priorities change, you know, stop doing this, start doing that. You know, we have to replatform. There's lots of reasons why, just like any other part of the business. Um, the problem is it's just the visibility uh, becomes the problem, right? Sort of uh, the visibility, the common way of thinking about it and talking about it and providing, if you will, other stakeholders I mean, if I'm in a software company, the marketing team is has to really understand what's happening in engineering. Why? Because everything they do campaign-wise probably revolves around products and features and releases and customer commitments and things like that. Um, and so, you know, that's that's part of the challenge. I think is that because there is no visibility, it's the it's increasing the if you will the budget spend of every organization is increasingly becoming higher paid a bigger part of the budget, higher paid people. Um, and, you know, and so I think that's part of the challenge. Um, it's important and critical for most companies. And it's, it's in some ways the least understood and probably the most, the, the most, if you will, opaque for most companies. But your report calls out that CTO, CIO levels, uh, excuse me, CTO, CIO respondents give the lowest score for their own engineering departments. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that basically um, sort of proves that point, right. Is like, they, they feel like even within the engineering organization, you know, the, if you sort of look inward and instead of look outward, I started with the outward, you know, but if you look inward to the organization again, um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a cocktail of lots of issues, right? You have a pipeline problem of hiring great people, um, having plenty of diversity in your hiring pipeline, having where do you put all your people and not all, you know, all people can fit, you know, can come from Stanford and fit inside of San Francisco physically anymore. Like, there's just not enough, you know, 
uh, places. So you've sort of got this pipeline problem of how do you get great people in? How do you re- how do you get them up to speed and, and productive on uh, software, which is difficult. Most companies don't know how to do that really well. Um, how do you get them productive? Uh, and then how do you not lose them after a year? You know, the average tenure in the Silicon Valley, as an example, again, an extreme example, but as an example is like 14, 15 months at most companies. It's crazy, right? You spend all this energy, all this money, all this corporate you know, if you will, investment in these people and then you lose them 12 to 18 months later. It's, it's not sustainable. Uh, that would be like a customer. I mean, think of, let's just think about it in a different way. I go acquire a customer. I spend, you know, 50 cents to acquire a customer that pays me $2. Uh, and then literally one year in, I lose them, right? So that's, a, that's, that's not a money-winning proposition over the long term, right? And so, um, you know, so I think that uh, the problem if you look inward is, uh, hard sort of you're just sort of trying to keep the lights on and trying to keep your your factory if you will running all the time um, within that um, it could be a lot of dissatisfaction inside of engineering it's really hard to know what people are working on are they working on the best things we had this problem my last company I'll give you a, a simple example of this we had my problem my last company where we had bought the small company um, and our intentions as a business was to give away their product and rework that product into a larger go-to-market, larger value proposition, selling to an enterprise instead of an individual prosumer. Um, we we were, uh, but to do this, we needed to re- have that team rework, uh, integrate, and rework a bunch of our product or a bunch of their product into our product. That was going to take three months. Um, at the end of three months, you know, we started uh, getting nervous about delivery dates. Like always, you're never late until the last week, right? In engineering, so we started fr- frantically trying to figure out well, when we're going to, how do we get it on time? Because we'd made sales commitments, sales pipeline sort of commitments to this, uh, but there was no product to sell. Um, we started frantically figuring out what's going on, why, what have they been working on, and we started finding out through a lot of investigation they had been committing code to their old product. Um, now that was frustrating. Right? Why are they doing this? This makes no sense. Why are they spending all this time on this old product? We, of course, I went and talked to the engineering team, uh, the individuals doing this. What's going on? Again, it wasn't bad behavior. It was they thought they still needed to support their old customers, and they felt guilty because their old customers were, had paid money, and they felt like they still needed loyal, out of loyalty. They still needed to uh, sort of address these issues. Um, and after talking through it with them. Um, we were like, look, had we known this, we would have just given those customers for free a, a year or two years of free and made sure they felt and even open source that product so they could they could do it themselves if that was the case. Um, from a business standpoint, it was an easy decision. We had no visibility into that. We had no visibility. And so we lost six months trying to get this product to market. Had, you know, had, had, you know, again, had we had good visibility into what activity was happening, we would have really seen that earlier and had a productive conversation with them. We're not going to let your customers hang. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to get screwed here. We're going to take care of them, but we're going to take care of them in a different way that doesn't require engineering resources for you to go off and, and work extra time trying to, trying to make them happy. So that's a good example of a lot of the frustration I think that happens inside of both inside of engineering and outside of engineering. It's the context often. People are trying to do the right thing. You know, obviously they usually get flushed out if they're not. Um, you know, and so you know people. You know, and you, you see this a lot. You know, especially in larger companies. I worked a year on a product that got shelved at the end, right? And and that's you know as a, as an engineer that's terrible. I mean, I put my heart and soul into something. I worked twelve months on something, and then it got shelved. We've we've all seen this. 
Um, now that happens. You know, pinpoint's not going to solve for that, right? But the goal is again, why do these things get shelved? Well, typically because they run their course, they become not important to the business anymore. They took longer time, et cetera. Right. Again, a lot of this ends up being communication and knowledge sharing and sort of awareness um, uh, about what's happening. One of the questions you asked in your survey was about the challenges that engineering departments face. What and the uh, and the results were quite uh, interesting. Can you talk about those, please? Yeah. Um, so one of the challenges when we asked sort of what's your top engineering challenge, and then we gave them a list. So again, they may have other challenges that weren't in our list, but we tried to sort of come up with a a reasonable uh, set of um, uh, none being an acceptable answer. I have no challenges, which very few people said none. Everybody has a challenge. If you're not, then you're probably going to have a big challenge uh, down the road. So, uh, you know, again, these challenges were, were things like alignment, staffing, speed, the contribution of the team, you know, feeling like you're making a contribution to the overall, you know, uh, importance of the company, demand, quality, et cetera. Um, you know, and, 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 and clearly, again, we, we had a cohort so we could look at the people that use metrics and the people that didn't use metrics and then look at their challenges and sort of compare them. Um, you know, if you didn't use any metrics at all, of course, um, uh, you know, a huge number of people said alignment, you know, vast majority of the people said alignment. Again, back to this idea of the, the company wants to do this, you know, or is aligned to go, you know, in one direction and engineering or product is going to be going in a different direction. There's a feeling of misalignment between the stakeholders. Um, now, you know, we could, we could cause, uh, we'd say that's communication, um, but often sort of, you know, in software development, communication is constant, right? You know, back to the sort of idea of agile, right? Things are changing constantly. The, the requirements, the needs, the business, et cetera, are changing. And to be able to adapt to that change requires lots of uh, awareness uh, situationally as well as communication. But, but alignment um, certainly was a bigger problem. Um, the second biggest problem, not surprising, was staffing. Um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you get great people? How do you retain them? How do you get them up to speed? Um, you know, how do you, how do you know if you, you know, you're overpaying or underpaying, how do you, sorry, how do you know if you've got the right people, you know, everybody, you know, that's, that's sort of a, uh, you know, I think a universal problem that all companies have, but certainly engineering uh, this day and age is a, a really big problem. And with the companies that we, let's say with the staffing challenges, are these the same companies that have the short tenures you're talking about the 11 months, 13 months? Well, it's, it's hard to, we, 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 um, we didn't, um, we did the surveys anonymously. We only asked for the size of their company. So it was hard to sort of know if, you know, it's hard for us to do any sort of by, by design, any correlation to that. Um, but, you know, not surprisingly, if you look at the geographic areas of these companies, certainly they are, they are mostly between San Francisco and New York. And, and so that, that correlates to those markets are generally hard. The companies inside those markets, if you're a small company, if you're a small startup, even if you're well-funded, inside of a large market like that, you're not just competing with all your peer group. You're also competing with the, 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 you know, the 800 pound gorillas, if you will, the Googles, the Facebooks, the, you know, the, the companies of that size, uh, among many other unicorn or heavily funded companies as well, you know, outside your peer group. So, you know, every, every company in those markets is really struggling, uh, with staffing. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that's a challenge in those markets that are, Probably in general markets, I think, but uh, but in general, they're very cute in those markets. Looking at your report, it's um, it's striking how many of the companies that didn't use performance met- use performance metrics have no problems. You know, l- looking right. at your bar graph, it's something like 
uh, maybe three or four times as many of those ones say they have no problems compared to the ones that uh, use metrics. You know, it's kind of ignorance yeah. is bliss. Almost. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful, right? When I'm not looking, I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I think that's that's not surprising. Um, but it's it's interesting if you also look at things like alignment and staffing and other areas, you know, they, they, they sort of, we don't use metrics, we don't feel like we have any problems, but we have speed issues, we have retention problems, we have alignment problems, right? And so, you know, I think, again, it's just a recognition that, you know, people yet don't tie performance of engineering to, you know, to a reasonable degree of importance in some cases. Do you think other departments face the same problems in the sense of alignment you know does does a sales uh department know how to sell what the company makes because what i've seen in a lot of companies is sales goes out and says we can sell abc by january 1st they haven't spoken to product they haven't spoken to development i've seen product managers say uh we can of course deliver something by then they haven't spoken to development you know i, I don't my impression is it's not limited to engineering what do you think? I, I um, as it relates certainly to engineering, I don't think it's certainly at all limited. Um, I don't. I haven't run into a lot of cases where engineering within engineering, or I'm sorry, sorry, sales within sales, or marketing within marketing itself feels misaligned. Um, meaning, I do think you know. I, I, I like to always say there's rarely a sales problem um, because really sales is sort of just the the trailing indicator to problems or in some cases the leading indicator of problems. Like if you're missing a quarter because of sales, that doesn't mean there's not structurally a problem in sales or very well could be. Um, but often it's probably pointing at something else, right? We missed the product delivery or we missed uh, some sort of marketing campaigns that are supposed to drive some sort of activity. Um, you know, rarely is it the salespeople didn't have anything in their bag to go sell. Um, again, I'm, I'm, it's a broad, gross overall generalization, but, but I've not, I've not run into a lot of issues myself pragmatically where I go into sales and I say, is sales misaligned? I mean, or is marketing misaligned? I think they're highly aligned because probably in some ways it's easier to judge or measure sales. Sales is, did you either meet your number? Or did you not meet your number? Um, so it's a little bit more binary and, 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 um, you know, it's sort of like uh, the chicken and the egg, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, or that terrible proverbial, are you the ham? You know, are you the pig? Or are you the chicken, right? And so, like, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, sales, they take part of their compensation generally, in most cases, in most companies, at least software-oriented companies, from, you know, at risk, right? And so if they don't sell, they don't make money. Um, you know, to use the sort of, uh, you know, you're, are you uh, an egg or are you ham, right? And so to sort of use that terrible analogy, um, they like to say, like, we, we have put a lot of our own skin, if you will, into the game to make revenue based on other, you know, other things that are outside our control. Like, we don't control the supporting of the product. We, can, we don't control the, the budgetary process, the prioritization process of the customer. You know, we certainly don't control delivering the product or supporting that product. Um, but yet we have to go out every day and, and sort of champion, if you will, um, a sell. And marketing is very similar. There's not, it seems to be, you know, I've not had a ton of alignment where marketing is off doing. Now, there may be some al misalignment between like sales and marketing, as an example. That does happen. You see that often. Um, but I've, I've not seen that in the last probably five plus years of business. I've seen that less and less because sales and marketing 
because they do have so many metrics that drive each other. You know, marketing can sort of say we delivered all these, uh, you know, qualified leads, which we've all agreed to. How do you qualify a lead? We've we've delivered this to sales, and sales can say as a handoff, we've taken those, and then we've created X amount of pipeline and Y amount of revenue from that. And so there's a there's a much better data driven way of looking at it. Um, engineering is a lot, you know, as we talked about, it's a harder thing to measure. It's not one binary thing. You say, did, did engineering really knock it out of the park this month? You know, you can sort of say a release, but, you know, often that, that you know, in, in modern day, it's a re- how do you define that, um, especially in a continuous development, continuous deployment type world? Do you plan to make this report a regular occurrence? Yes, our hope is that, you know, this is a first baseline. Um, you know, our hope is every uh, every year, probably multiple times a year, is we're going to start to actually um, get broader and broader with the report as far as the distribution and the types of companies, ask the same or similar questions so we can sort of do trending over time. Um, and then our hope is probably sometime next year, probably for the next report, our hope to actually bring some quantifiable data out of our product into the report. So it won't just be asking people questions and sort of getting, um, you know, sort of, uh, um, sort of results, you know, from their opinion, we'll actually have data to back it up and data on some of the companies as well. So we'll be able to sort of, what's their impression and perception versus what's the reality and what's actually happening. And, and that we think will bring an interesting point of view to the, to the survey. How do people find the report? Um, you can just go to our website, pinpoint.com, and and certainly it's available for free download there. Um, and and you know we'll try to make it more and more uh, available um, through different mechanisms, social media, et cetera, um, as well over time. Any final notes before we wrap up for today, Jeff? I think that's good. How would people find your website, your Twitter, other uh, ways of interacting with you? Pinpoint.com, P-I-M-P-O-N-T, P-I-N-T.com. And then Twitter? Uh, pinpoint underscore S-W. Twitter is impossible to get handles fat anymore. <laughs> so it's a terrible, or just go to pinpoint.com, slide down, or type in pinpoint software, uh, and you can probably find us there as well. So that's our other handle for, um, you know, and GitHub, it's P-I-M-P-T. That was the original name of the company, P-I-N-P-T, Pinpoint. Um, but uh, that was confusing enough. We ended up uh, getting Pinpoint.com. And then you just moved to Austin. Are you hiring? We are. We are. If you come to our website, you can see all the jobs. We're mostly hiring in our uh, pipeline, data science team, front-end team, mostly in engineering. We do have some sales and marketing in some other areas as well, but uh, mostly still in engineering. All right, great. Data science. Well, Jeff Haney, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 135 with Bob Martin on Clean Agile, or episode 81 with Doc Norton on Better Agile Metrics.
The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Raro Bueno by Chazausen from the album Awesome is Grey. 